Galatians chapter 5, verse 1. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Behold, I, Paul, say to you that if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you. And I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he is under obligation to keep the whole law. You have been severed from Christ. You who are seeking to be justified by law, you have fallen from grace. For we, through the Spirit, by faith, are waiting for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything but faith working through love. Verse 1 again, it was for freedom that Christ set us free. It had already been an interesting morning. Jesus came down the Mount of Olives where he had stayed, slept out under the stars. He often would do that when he visited Jerusalem. It's likely he crossed a massive stone bridge that ran from the Mount of Olives across the Kidron Valley and right to the temple, entering into the east gate of the temple. And coming into the temple courts, made his way into what was called the women's court, right next to the treasury, and there he sat down to teach. It was a favorite teaching spot of Jesus. And as he sat just to teach on this normal morning, something happened. The Pharisees had been busy hatching a scheme. What was to their purposes was to a woman's shame. Caught in the act of adultery, she's dragged in, not just before Jesus, not just before the Pharisees and the Jewish leadership, but into the temple. And into the temple courts. And thrown on the ground before Jesus and the Pharisees begin to to go after him and say, what should we do? The law says she should be stoned to death. And they had him. They knew they had him. Because the law said that. And if he didn't agree with the law, he would be in violation of Jewish law. But if he agreed with it, it would undermine all the love and grace that he had shown in his ministry. Of course, you know Jesus wrote on the ground. And and he said, whoever's without sin can be the first to cast the first stone. And oldest to youngest, they leave. Jesus looks up at the woman and says, Is there no one here to condemn you? She says, No one, Lord. And he says, Well, neither do I condemn you. And I remind you, he kept the law. Because there was no one there to condemn. And you had to have at least two witnesses for a condemnation. All the witnesses were gone. So Jesus both kept the law and proceeded to usher in grace into this woman's life. After that, in John chapter 8, verse 31, let me just read this to you. It says, Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed Him, If you continue in My Word, then you are truly disciples of Mine, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Remarkably, Jesus didn't say, If you continue in the law. If you continue in the Word. He says, If you continue in My Word. This is what freaked out the Pharisees. You know, this is what challenged these Jewish leaders. Jesus proclaimed it as His Word. He said things like, You have heard it was said, but I say to you. So if you continue in My Word, Jesus says, you will be disciples of Mine. You'll know the truth. The truth will make you free. Well, they answered Him, We're Abraham's descendants. uh, uh, descendants. We're Abraham's descendants and have never yet been enslaved to anyone. 
Forget about Egypt. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. Anyone been there? The slave does not remain in the house forever. In other words, the day is coming where the slave, the sinner, is kicked out. The son does remain forever. You remember in chapter 4 of Galatians that we talked about sonship. And that sonship is the offer offer to all who follow Jesus. Male or female, it makes no difference. Ladies, you can become, you are in Christ Jesus, sons. We are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus, Paul says. And if you struggle with that, I encourage you, go back and listen to Wednesday night. Because we broke it down and looked at sonship. And he says, so if the Son makes you free, you will be free indeed. Freedom. I mean, real freedom. Now, some try to argue the point. Some say, no. No, you Christians are not free. You're just bound to your own religion. It's just another form of religion, another archetype of religion in the history of the world. Let me counter that statement by making a very clear statement and an unequivocal statement. No one is free until Jesus sets you free. No one is free. But sadly, a lot of people will look at Christianity as anything but free. They see or they assume bondage. Well, if I start going to your church, there's going to be obligations and there's going to be rules and restrictions and things that I have to follow and that just sounds oppressive. That's not freedom. Freedom to me is being easy on Sunday morning. You know, sleeping in, having my breakfast, chilling by the fire in the wintertime, hanging out with my toes in the water in the summertime. That's, that's freedom. No, it's not. No, it's not because bondage is going to hit you Monday morning and you know it. <laughs> Not to bring up last weekend again, but I I have to... The protest signs were all over, and and one of them at the Women's March last weekend in D.C. actually read, and I quote, If Mary had had an abortion, we wouldn't be in this mess. This is a world that thinks it's free. Yeah, and, and statements like that are so shocking. Hey, if if Jesus had never been born, the woman caught in adultery would have been stoned to death. Do you know that? If Jesus had never been born, all the women named in His lineage, which was unheard of in Matthew chapter 1, Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba, all of questionable character and or origin, they all would have been hopelessly lost. A woman's only hope for freedom is in Christ Jesus. And a man's only hope for freedom is in Christ Jesus. He offered freedom and equality to women long before the suffragettes fought for voting rights. No one is free until Christ sets us free. And as we read back in Galatians chapter 3, there is neither Jew nor Greek, that is, no race. There is neither slave nor free, no class. There is neither male nor female, no gender. All are one in Christ Jesus. And so we all come to Him and we receive sonship. Going back further than that, check out the sonship of Zelophehad's daughters 
that we talked about on Wednesday night. Numbers 27. It's an amazing story. But you see the heart of God for women as well as men. For inheritance being received by daughters, which never happened, but did in Israel. Well, the point is that we would all be bound by the chains of final death or futureless despair, if not for Jesus. That Jesus is freedom. If the Son makes you free, He says, you will be free indeed. Now in Galatians chapter 4, look there real quickly. We studied this last week. Galatians 4.4 tells us when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under law, so that He might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Because you are sons, God sent forth the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, an heir through God. If the son makes you free, you are free indeed. And I love this Galatian letter because it is so liberating. But it's not just liberating to someone coming to Jesus for the first time. It is liberating for every believer. Because we as followers of Jesus Christ have a tendency to slide backward. Not into sin, although that will happen. We have a tendency to slide backward into religion. Backward into law, backward into chains. And Jesus keeps saying, no, 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 that's not it. You're missing it. If it's about keeping the regulations, keeping the rules and the rituals, then you are just chaining yourself up again. That's not freedom. It is for freedom that Christ set us free. You could say freedom is the full realization of grace. Freedom is the realization of grace. Grace is what God offers, and the result is freedom. And so this morning in chapter 5, we do come to the pinnacle of the letter. And it is summed up in that one word, freedom. Freedom. Now, before we get into these verses, and I truly, I planned several weeks ago to go through about verse 13 thought that kind of rounded things out for a good Sunday morning teaching. And I got as far as verse 6, and that's all we can handle this morning. But before we even get into these six verses and and really pull them apart, we're going to get real specific here and unpack this for our understanding. Before we do that, there are two things that I want to state that I think will sum up the verses here before us. In fact, this particular paragraph, two things that sum the whole thing. Number one is the focal point, and number two is the factions. The focal point and the factions. The focal point is very simple. Four times Christ is named. Four times in six verses, uh, verse 1, verse 2, verse 4, and verse 6. In fact, you could say the paragraph is dominated by what Jesus has done in contrast to the yoke of the law. You see the comparison as Paul is writing here, and we will again see it's all about Jesus. It always is. It is always about Jesus. So he is the focal point of our freedom. Don't get confused. Freedom is not some nebulous thing out here that we achieve or that we strive for or that we seek after. Freedom is in Christ Jesus. And if you... If the Son makes you free, He says you are free indeed. So it's all about Him. You will not find freedom outside of Him. Even in all the church attendance and verse memorization 
and service projects, everything you can engage in will not bring you freedom. Only Jesus will bring you freedom. So he's the focal point. But the second thing that I find interesting is what we could say, the factions. The factions in the fellowships. And I'm talking about the fellowships in Galatia. Notice Paul's alternating use in these verses of the first and second person plural pronouns. You English students know exactly what I'm talking about. Just notice this. In verses 1 and 5, he uses the the word us or we. And in verses 2 and 4, he uses the word you. They're in contrast. There's us and there's them. There's we and there's you. Uh, He says in verse 1, Christ set us free. He says in verse 2, if you receive circumcision. In verse 4 he says, you have been severed from Christ and you have fallen from grace. And then in verse 5 he says, we through the Spirit by faith are waiting for the hope of righteousness. There's a faction going on. And I caught this because it is a faction that exists in every church fellowship today. There are those of you, and I'm not saying you, but there are the the yous who are living by religion. And then there are the we, the us, who are living by grace. And it goes on everywhere. And sometimes it's more subtle. But there are those of us who struggle to find freedom in Christ because we are still weighed down by guilt and shame from sin and things that we've done in the past and not feeling like we can possibly do enough. And Pastor Rick asked for servants to help out for first service child care and I'm the last person who's going to do it, but I feel a little guilty. I probably should, but I'm not going to. (laughs) And so there's that little struggle going on. And then there's always that, there's that person that annoys all of us that just seems so happy all the time. They just, you know, they're just, they, they love Jesus, Jesus loves them, and we look at them and go, well, that's good for you. <laughs> Us and them. Factions, even within fellowship. It's not, it's not, listen, it's not a mentality of, of exclusiveness, you know, or, or even bigotry, you know, Us and them, you know, we grace people, those legal people. You know, that, that's not what he's saying. He's just pointing out a truth and a reality. Jesus called this division tares in the wheat. He called this division leaven in the dough, Matthew chapter 13. Paul refers to it in 1 Corinthians 11 verse 19. He says there also must be factions among you, so that those who are approved may become evident among you. What's the point of that? There is a sifting process that's going on right now. In this fellowship, and in every church in the world, it's an eschatological sifting or, or sifting process. And, and it's not something to be excited or happy about. That's not what Paul's saying. It's an inevitable part of the church of the last days. That there are those who are getting grace. And by the way, those who have grace aren't walking around lording it over. In fact, once you start to get grace, you become very humbled by it. And thankful for it. And desirous only that everyone would know that. But it's there. And in any given church fellowship, there are still people living by law. On any given Sunday, there's a filtering process that is going on. Those who would receive and live in grace and those who are bound and chained by law, don't be them. Be us. 
See how I put myself with the S. <laughs> Don't be on the side of law and legalism and religion and, and the burden. Because you know what? I don't want you putting that on me. I don't want you putting that on anyone. It can be subtle. I mean, we were out there in the foyer and I started to come into worship. And I said, hey, guys, make sure Glenn gets into worship on time this morning. And Kathy caught me. Well, you're standing at the door. You're not in there either. And there it goes. The guilt just rolls back and forth. I tag him. She tags me. We're all guilty. Rachel's up here leading worship going, where's the leadership? No. Choose Jesus and be set free. What is it that even allows us to joke around like that? We're free in Christ. It is not my being in the seat on time for Rachel's first note that gets me saved. I mean, that's even ridiculous to say. But neither is it all the rules that we place on ourselves. Freedom. Real freedom. Wait, okay, so Rick, are you saying there are some among us this morning, if you're talking about tares in the wheat, I happen to know that tares get cast out. Are you saying that there are some people here this morning that may not even be saved? Who claim to be Christians, but might not be? Don't look around at each other. (laughs) No, when I look, I, I don't see that. I don't know. But God knows. And there are those who have not received grace, who are still living in law, who still think it's about them, who still want to present their deeds before God, and your deeds will never save you. Just a relationship with Jesus. Let me simplify it. Let's go back. What did we ask last week? What was the question to ask yourself? What do you feel when you say, Abba? I just raise that again because that should do something to your heart. When I say, Abba, Father... I know, I know where my salvation lies. I know my freedom in Jesus. I know I'm saved. I've got a good Father. And He's got me. Abba Father, if, if you're not sure right now, this moment, about eternity, about salvation, then come to Jesus. Cry out to Jesus. He will not leave you unsaved. That's His promise. If the sun sets you free, you are free indeed. Well, that's all background. So now, verse 1. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. That might sound a little redundant. I always used to think it did. It was for freedom Christ set us free. Well, duh. That makes sense. I mean, I get it, Paul. It's actually... A beautiful and brilliant statement. In English, this is called a Janus sentence. A Janus sentence is written actually after the two-headed false Roman god Janus. (laughs) Or if you're into Batman, it would be two-faced. But it's a sentence. A Janus sentence basically looks two ways at once. It was for freedom, looking forward, that Christ set us free from what's past. 
for freedom, I've been set free. So the face looks both directions in this one sentence and makes me realize not only now am I free, but I have been freed from everything behind me. And so that stuff doesn't pull me back, doesn't have any strength or draw on me. And I move forward into the freedom of Christ, having been freed from the things of the past, set free to be free. Man, set free from what we were in glorious freedom. And he goes on and he says, Therefore, since I have been set free to be free, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Keep standing firm. Keep standing firm. It's one word. It's steko in the Greek. It's a good word. Actually, I could use that word, I think, with my dog Reggie. Steko. <laughs> Stako means keep standing firm. It literally means to persevere. Paul is saying that. Man, persevere. Persevere in what, Paul? Persevere in freedom. Stand for freedom. Fight for freedom. Declare and proclaim your freedom. And he writes this in the present active imperative. That is stako. It is an ongoing command. It's not you've been freed from Christ, so stand up and be counted. It's you've been freed from Christ, now keep being free. Keep standing free. Keep fighting and persevering for the freedom that you have been given. And it's not the only time Paul says this phrase. It's a favorite, I think, of Paul's. There are a couple in this paragraph. And Paul says to the church at Corinth, 1 Corinthians 16, 13, be on the alert. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. (laughs) Be strong. Philippians chapter 4, verse 1, he says to the church of Philippi, Stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. 2 Thessalonians 2.15, to the church at Thessalonica, he says, Stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught, whether by word or by letter from us. Now, some people go, okay, see, there's the problem right there. I've been set free, and now I've got to keep traditions. Yeah, of course you do, absolutely. The traditions you've been taught such as it was for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm in the freedom of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Jesus' people in this world need to stand firm in these last days. We have had wobbly legs. We have had sinking feet. We have wandered off from the firmness of the truth, from standing up for the truth. Standing in the name of Jesus Christ. For what's right? You know, my, my, my friend Bill caught me, and rightly so. He's got a passion, as many of us do and should, for life. And for being outspokenly pro-life. And he was asking me just about our, our talking about abortion and the numbers of abortions that have happened in this, in this nation and in this country and, and being outspoken about that and, and being a church that's willing to stand on the principle of life. And I say to you, we do. And I do. I am completely opposed to abortion. I am for life. And there was a marvelous pro-life march this weekend in D.C. Didn't get the airplay that... The march of the previous weekend did. I was shocked. 
Vice President Mike Pence spoke, first Vice President in history to speak at a pro-life march. Praise the Lord. Things like these. There are important issues, and it's not to be political. It's about truth. It is about living in our freedom and presenting Jesus Christ in this world, and we do so in every aspect of our lives. And to stand up and be counted and be firm and be true and be strong in these last days. And and the most important thing that we need to be firm on, that we tend to be a little wobbly on, is grace. It's grace. Stand firm. We need to do something here. Not right now, but with our lives. We need to correct a false narrative. And I challenge you to do it with friends and family. To correct the false narrative of unbelief, Christianity is not about oppressive obligations. Christianity is not about repressive rules and restrictions. Jesus is freedom. How often have you said that to people? (laughs) You're so bound up with your guilt and your shame and the problems of life. How about just letting Jesus take it away? How about walking in freedom? Freedom from the past to the future. The freedom that we have in Jesus is like nothing the world can offer. And by the way, for the young woman who has had an abortion, there is freedom. There is forgiveness. There is redemption. There is grace. But only in Jesus Christ. Come to Jesus. And find freedom. You know, a side note, because I brought it up. It's one of the things that's most frustrating about the whole pro-abortion movement is no one talks about the damage done to the young woman. Recognizing, obviously, the life that has been taken. But I believe God has amazing grace for that life. But for the woman, she'll bear that her whole life. Unless she come to Jesus and hear Him say, Is there no one here to condemn you? Neither then do I condemn you. Go your way and sin no more. That's the wonder of grace and freedom. Do you realize there is nothing you have ever done, there is no sin you have ever committed that is too great that the blood of Jesus is not sufficient to cleanse you of it. And that's what the world needs to hear. Freedom like nothing that you can receive in this world. Now, you make a statement like that and someone might say, you're running the risk of Bonhoeffer's cheap grace, aren't you? And I used to think so. I used to be very careful talking about grace. Got to be careful not to get too far out with this grace stuff or people might start to think that they're free to do whatever they want. Listen to me. They are. You are, by the grace of God, completely and absolutely free. Okay, Rick. Let me put it this way. I get drunk every time I want to. And I gamble at the Swinomish every time I want to. I watch porn and sleep around and lie and cheat and steal every time I want to. You know what happens in grace? I don't want to. I don't want to. We're so afraid to talk about grace because, man, if, if, if I offer grace, if, if I accept grace and the freedom that comes with it, people are just going to go sin crazy. Not if you've received amazing grace. 
See, grace does something to your heart. When you have been forgiven and freed from all that stuff, all that stuff is not as attractive as it once was. It just kind of loses the power. Because I, I, could, I, could, I could go do that. Or I, I, could, I could go worship Jesus. I could walk with the Lord. I could have joyful fellowship with my friends. I could go out with Christian friends on a Friday night and remember it the next day. I mean, you see how much better it is to live by grace and the freedom that comes with grace. And grace replaces all of my wants and all of my desires with His. Now, someone might say, Ah, but you have to go to church, Chris. You better go to church. And you have to study the Bible. And you have to be good. No, I don't. I want to. I don't have to. And that's the mentality that, that the Lord has just kind of, I mean, over the years has been slowly explaining to this very dull mind. <laughs> you don't have to do this. The question is, do you want to? And the Bible says, Psalm 37, 4, Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. You know what happens? The more you delight yourself in the Lord, the more the desires of your heart become aligned with godly want-tos. The more I realize the things He wants of me, that He desires for me, are so good, why would I want anything else? That's grace. And what I'm saying is I trust the grace of God in the love of Jesus to make all the want-tos and the have-tos of life freedom and liberation. And we're just one verse in. Verse 2. Behold, I, Paul... And Paul says, I, Paul, there, he's, he's making himself... He's, he's declaring authority. All right. I, Paul, say... This is not just some idea out there. I am saying this to you. Hear me clearly on this. I say to you that if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you. And Paul now is going to give four laws or, or flaws of religious legalism. And he just uses circumcision as the example. So don't get all caught up on, on that word. Don't get stuck there. That's not the issue. It's just a point. It's kind of an example of the law. Four flaws that he pulls out right here. And number one is forsaken benefit. If you go back to law, if you accept what these Agitators, these legalists are trying to say to you, churches of Galatia, and you go back into law, Christ will be of no benefit. You will have forsaken the benefit of Jesus. He is the single most benefit relationship a person can have. Why? Because He stands firm for you. Because when you can't stand up, He is. He does. John says in 1 John chapter 2, My little children... I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And He Himself is the propitiation, that is the complete and total cleansing of our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the whole world. In other words, the propitiation is out there. The cleansing is available for everyone. The blood of Christ is sufficient for every person on the planet. All you got to do is say, I need that advocate. I believe in you, Jesus. Covered. But to reject Christ by receiving circumcision, that is by keeping the law, 
denies the benefit of his advocacy. It denies him as the defense attorney. It denies his grace. It's, it's no thanks, Jesus, I got this. I like the grace thing. I thank you for giving that to me when I first became a Christian, but now I'm doing fine. I'll take care of this on my own. I love you, bro, but I'll just do my part now. And it was Peter who said in Acts 4.12, there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. And that includes your name and mine. My name cannot save me. I cannot take it from here. See, I had that mentality years ago. God's grace brought me to salvation and I brought myself from salvation to heaven. What a weight. What a burden. What a crock. No. Jesus saves you and He sanctifies you all the way to heaven. He's the advocate. He's the stand-up guy. He's the one who, when you fall down on your face, is still standing in defense of you as one belonging to Him. That's marvelous. It's been put this way. You might even want to jot this down. A Christ supplemented is a Christ supplanted. A Christ supplemented is a Christ supplanted. Anything that is Jesus and. And I do that when I say it's the grace of God and my work in this area. And my overcoming this sin. And my ability to keep up with the rules. A Christ supplemented is a Christ supplanted. Would you unseat the world's greatest defense attorney to advocate for yourself? Did you want to take the box yourself and plead your case? On January 10th, Dylan Roof, the 22-year-old white supremacist, who you know the story, he killed nine parishioners at the historic Emanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church in South Carolina. He refused the court-appointed attorney and decided he was going to defend himself without repentance in the penalty phase of his trial, and he got the death penalty. He advocated for himself. Probably could have gotten someone in there to advocate for him who would have gotten him life, you know, without hope of parole. But he got in there and in defending himself, like I said, was unrepentant, stood on his right to do what he did, spouting racist terms, and he got the death penalty I would say, and you're going to think me perhaps brutish, but I think he deserved it nine times over. But my point is this. Everyone will receive the death penalty who decides to be their own advocate. That's the way it is. Revelation 20 tells us very clearly books will be opened and there will be a judgment of deeds for everyone who wants to be their own advocate. You know who that is? It's the good person. I'm good enough. I'm a pretty good guy. I mean, I really am. I don't lie, cheat, steal. I only visit the Swinomish every now and then. And for the most part, I'm a good person. Okay? You have every right to go advocate for yourself before God as to your perfection to be with Him in heaven. You have that right. Do you want to defend yourself? Or would you like Jesus to defend you? Jesus who said, 
Luke 10.20, Rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. And he's referring to the Lamb's book of life. And there's only one way to get your name in that book. Trust Jesus. You believe in Jesus. You let Him be your defense. You come to Him by His grace. Your name is recorded in the Lamb's book of life. And the book of deeds is closed, shut, forgotten. Actually, it's sponged out. There are no deeds that are negative for you anymore. The blood of Christ is an amazing cleansing agent. Second flaw of religion. That's just the first one. The forsaken benefit. Secondly, Full bondage. Full bondage. Verse 3. And I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he is under obligation to keep, you might underline this, the whole law. You want to be circumcised? Fine. You got another 612 laws along with that. You got to keep. Because once you say I am under this law, you're under all of it. There is no law that doesn't apply. So you put yourself in full bondage. You can't pick and choose which laws to keep. It's like Pokemon. Got to catch them all. I don't think I've ever used that in a sermon before, Rachel. (laughs) Seriously. Once we go down the road, and this is what we don't understand, we who would prop ourselves up by our own self-righteousness don't get the fact that once I say I can keep this ordinance, I am in essence saying, and every other one. I must keep all of it, or i got to have grace. It's, it's an either or. It is that black and white. It's that absolute. Paul said back in Galatians 3.10, For as many as are the works of the law, or as many are as of the works of the law, are under a curse, it's written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things, written in the book of the law, to perform them. And he's quoting Deuteronomy 26.27. God did not say, here's a, a law book, Do your best. He said, here's my law. Keep everyone. Here's my law. Don't mess up. Why would he do that? To prove that we would. To show us our desperate need for his grace so that when his grace came, we would all, we would breathe in deep, heave a sigh of relief and realize we have been set free. And we don't have to keep that anymore. We are out of bondage. But you see, that's exactly what religious tradition does. It puts us into full bondage. And, by the way, it elevates certain laws above others. We do that in the church sometimes. You know, what to you is more important to others is less important. And depending on your perspective, you elevate certain things. I I do it too. And once you go down that road, there's no coming back. Some churches elevate Sabbath. You know, got to keep Sabbath. It's got to be Saturday. Any other day is wrong. You got to keep Sabbath. Okay, I'm not opposed to having Saturday off. I'm not even opposed to worshiping on a Saturday. But once you start doing that, then you have just gone back to law and you better keep the whole thing. You're going to restart the sacrifices too? You're going to start keeping every nuance of the law? If you're going to keep Sabbath, are you going to keep kosher diet? Some do. Others say, no, no, it's the, it's the Eucharist. It's, it's, the, it's the taking of communion. Well, Rick, I happen to know at the bridge you take it every Sunday. Yeah, not because we have to. We want to. And we get to. 
But don't take communion this morning so you can get your, your grace points and head home. I had a bad week, but I took communion. It's all good. No, 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 no. Other churches say, no, it's the liturgy. We've got to keep the liturgy or the holy days, again, or the dietary rules. And you know what we've done? By elevating even one law, we've just moved back into Torah. Better keep them all. Every single one. Because with the law, we don't have the right to choose. It is full bondage. Verse 4. And then he says, you have been severed from Christ, you who are seeking to be justified by law. So a forsaken benefit, full bondage, worse yet, flaw number three, what I would call a fatal bisection. You have been, lawkeeper, cut off from Christ. Severed from Christ, Paul says. No Jewish parent ever wants to hear a moil that is a trained circumciser say, Oops! Oi! <laughs> and in the context of circumcision, I do believe that's exactly what Paul is implying. That picture of circumcision is always there, already there. Those of you who keep circumcision, you got to keep the whole law. And it's got to be precise, and yet you are, you have been severed from Christ. Oops. Boy. Look at verse 12, just to give you a more graphic picture of what Paul is implying. I wish that those who are troubling you would even mutilate themselves. In other words, cut themselves off. Do I need to explain more? Are you picking up what I'm putting down here? My goodness. One commentator actually called circumcision, quote, the sacrament of their excision from Christ. If you're going to do this cutting, you are cutting yourself off from Jesus. And it is a fatal bisection. Why? Because there is only one way to the Father. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And so circumcision will not avail anybody. And circumcision as simply that picture of the law will not avail anybody. No law keeping. And if you decide to keep the law, you have just committed a a fatal bisection. You're cutting yourself off from Jesus. You're saying, I can do this. I don't need him. And this word, by the way, severed in verse 4, also means rendered inoperative. So, in other words, what he's saying, he's warning against the cold, dead lifestyle of religion that cuts off Jesus and renders our relationship with him, renders grace inoperative. Uh, Let me put it that way. Choosing law renders grace inoperative. If I'm going to live by religious, legalistic traditions, I am rendering grace inoperative. Unable to function anymore, I have just committed fatal bisection. It's a lifestyle that cuts off Christ. And it leads to the final flaw of living by law. Number four, falling backward. Look at the last part of verse four. You have fallen from grace. Christians often assume that falling away means falling into sinful rebellion. You know, we'll, we'll even use that phrase. Oh yeah, he, he fell away. Or, or she's fallen away. Or I've fallen away. 
And what we mean by that is, is falling from forgiveness and from a relationship with Jesus back into our sin. But that's not what Paul's saying here. Just to have fallen from grace means you have traded out the liberty of grace for the law. You have traded out freedom for bondage. I, I heard one pastor put it this way. He said it's like, it's like someone in a jail yard, the, the door to his cell pops open. And he's free. All the jail cells have popped open around the yard. Everybody can leave. You're free to go. And he runs out of the jail cell directly across the yard and into the cell across the yard and closes the door as quickly as possible. Why would you do that? You have just fallen from freedom. You are falling backward. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Right? Not to go back. Not to fall from that grace. Well, how does anyone really begin falling backward? How does that happen? Jesus sent a letter to uh, His darling church, the church at Ephesus. And in it He said, I know your deeds and your toil and your perseverance and that you cannot tolerate evil men. This is Revelation chapter 2, verse 2. I know you put to the test those who call themselves apostles and they are not. And you found them to be false. And you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. And if he had stopped right there, we would say Ephesus rocks. That's the church to be part of. Man, they are solid. Their doctrine is solid. They fight the good fight. That's the church that's happening. They're going places. Look how hard they work. And then Jesus says... But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. You do all the great works in the world, all the perseverance, all the deeds, and miss completely what this is all about. And that is the love of Christ. You've, you've left your first love, he says. And then note his wording. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen they had fallen from grace falling backward fallen from their first love they hadn't fallen into sin Ephesus was not a sinful church Ephesus was a righteous church but they had fallen backwards fallen from grace it's the perfect description I think for falling from the heights of godly righteousness which is by grace into the depths not of sin but of self Righteousness, And that's not a good place to be. And it's a falling backwards. So Paul, he comes out of this back in Galatians 5, and he immediately unfurls the contrast. And this is where it gets really exciting. The contrast of grace, verse 5 he says, For we, through the Spirit, by faith, are waiting for the hope of righteousness. And the the hope of being absolutely, 100%, perfectly right with God. And you know, when you come to Jesus, you receive that. He makes you immediately righteous. He looks at you right now, this morning, as you're sitting here. God sees a righteous dude. A righteous dudette. (laughs) He looks at you and He sees righteousness. I look at me and I don't see righteousness. I see a guy who sometimes is barely hanging on. I see a guy who looks in the mirror and goes, why can't you get it right? 
God already sees me as righteous. But what Paul is saying here is he's speaking to the heart. He's speaking right here to me. There is a hope of righteousness. I know God sees me as righteous. But my hope is there is a day coming, absolutely, where I will realize I am righteous. Because He made me that way. And it's a marvelous hope. And and He says we're waiting for it. What, just waiting? Just kind of waiting around? Oh no. No, no. No, the word we are waiting for the hope of righteousness is affect dechomai. Got it? Affect dechomai. In the Greek, it literally means eagerly awaiting. It's not just waiting around, you know, for the show to start. We are eagerly awaiting. And that's the other favorite word of Paul's in this passage. Stand firm and eagerly await. Those are the two. Eagerly awaiting. In Romans 8.24 he says, For in hope we have been saved. But hope that is seen is not hope. Who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see with perseverance, we eagerly wait for it. Same word. Philippians 3.20 Our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, the same word. And in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 28. So Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await Him. We're in eager expectation, eager waiting for the hope of righteousness. And that means that the hope of righteousness in this passage is an eschatological statement. An eschatological, that is an end times hope. We are eagerly waiting for that moment any day now, when we will be right with God, recognizing in and of ourselves that He has done everything He promised to do. He's made us right. Fully righteous. Can you wear that hope? Can can you walk with that hope? Can you, you know, in in acting and in, in drama, they call it the suspension of belief. You know, you know the guy up on stage is just a guy who when the play's over, he's going to go out and get dinner somewhere and he's just a dude. But on the stage, he's the man of La Mancha. You know, I mean, he's, he's, so you accept that. Can you accept right now your righteousness for the reality that when the curtain comes down, you actually will be righteous? That's the promise. That is the hope. Revelation 19 verse 8 tells us that hope of righteousness says it was given to her, speaking of the church, to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. What does that mean exactly? Well, first of all, it was given to her. So any righteous thing that I do was given to me to do. I didn't do it. I didn't come up with the idea, and I didn't even have the power to perform anything righteous, but God working through me does it. So it was given to me. But he also says the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. You know what that tells me? It tells me that looking back, all we'll see is righteousness. That the sin that I struggle with now, the the memories of those things right now, gone. All I'll see is the righteous acts. So what Paul is saying right now is by the grace of God, wear it. Wear it now. Wear your righteousness Not in pride, don't get me wrong. But wear it in the hopeful expectation of all this being accomplished. And Psalm 71, here's how you wear that righteousness. Psalm 71, 15, My mouth shall tell of your righteousness and of your salvation all day long. 
I do not know the sum. I will come with the mighty deeds of the Lord God. I will make mention of your righteousness, yours alone. That's how you wear the hope of righteousness. Meanwhile, meanwhile back in Jerusalem. So let's sum this up. You know all that had happened on that day of the adulteress's freedom. And by the way, that story, when we get to heaven, will be sponged out, I believe. We will not meet her and know her as the adulteress. We will just know her as a daughter of God. We won't remember that old story. It's taken away. It'll be moved. But on that day, after all the pharisaical hubbub, the dust settled down there. Jesus got back to teaching. And imagine settling down with the crowds in that moment and again hearing these words, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. So if the son makes you free, you will be free indeed. Then what? Then what, Lord? And Paul now starts to lean into the practical outcome of grace in our lives. Verse 6, he says, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything but faith working through love. Now, don't close your Bibles just yet. It's funny, when I go back and, and upload the teaching every now and then, at the very end of the teaching I hear, zip, 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 zip. <laughs> Verses 5 and 6 taken together have been called, first of all, note this, the, the primitive Christian triad. The primitive Christian triad. You note that in verse 5 he says, about halfway through, by faith we are waiting for the hope And then at the end of verse 6 he says, it's faith working through love. Faith, hope, and love. 1 Corinthians 13.13, but the greatest of these is love. That's the end game. And Paul says, look, it's neither circumcision nor is it, note this, uncircumcision. And I love that he says that. He's saying, hey, you Gentiles, you're not going to be saved because you don't get circumcised. So you can't walk around saying, I'm not part of the circumcision group. (laughs) I'm better than that. No, you're not. Because that has nothing to do with it. Circumcised or not, lawkeeper prior to this or not, it doesn't matter. None of that matters. In other words, from the cathedral to the casino, from the religious ceremony to the all-night kager, neither one can save you. Both end up condemning you if that's where you put your faith. Faith in His grace. Now, faith in His grace does something absolutely radical and even transformational in us. And for you Bible students, this has been called, verse 6, the last four words. Faith working through love. This has been called the bridge between Galatians and James. What do you mean? This is the bridge between the grace letter and the works letter. As often described, James chapter 2, verse 26 says, Just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. And James comes along and he writes his letter saying, You show me your faith, that's great. You say you have faith, wonderful, but where are your works? Prove it. You don't have faith unless it's working. 
unless you're doing. And scores of Christians across 2,000 years have taken the letter of James and turned church into a a legalistic thing, which was never James' intention. And we'll see that when we get to the book of James. Nope, not long from now. Lord willing. It's not about works. James is just saying, faith doesn't just sit there as an esoteric thing. Faith is seen. But this is the bridge, and I love it. It's, it's faith working through love. The two apostles and the two letters are not at odds. It is faith working through love. And the word working there, it's a great word, energeo. It's where we get our word energy. It is faith energized through love. And when faith is energized by love, grace is applied. That's, that's grace in action. So what Paul is saying is, look, after all this, you are saved by grace. You are freed by Jesus. He set us free for freedom. And how does that play out? What do I do with that? How do I live? Love is now the dynamic work of the Christ follower. Not hope of my salvation. You got the difference? For a lot of people, hope of salvation is my work. It's my righteousness. It's it's my effort. It's my proving to God that He should save me. And and Paul's saying, no, it's just love. But even your love doesn't save you. Your love flows from the fact that you have been saved. Your love, that that now becomes the exciting work. Romans 5.5, the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. So He pours the love into us. It flows out of us. We are people who are free, set free. Set free to do what? Free to love. Because we're not worried about the whole salvation issue anymore. We have grace. By the way, when, when Paul says, in Christ neither circumcision or uncircumcision is anything, but faith working through love, he's not talking about God's love here. He's talking about yours. And he's talking about mine. Our love, first for God, first for Jesus, and then for people. And Jesus said in Matthew twenty-two forty, on these two commandments, love God and love your neighbor as yourself, depend the whole law and the prophets. It's the fulfillment of the law. Remember when we first started, I said, Jesus with the woman caught in adultery, He fulfilled the law by grace. That's what grace does. It fulfills the whole law. Because Jesus was perfect, kept the law, and now I come into Jesus, He comes into me, and the law has been satisfied. So now I just live by grace, leaving me with two things to do, love God and love people. That's it. That's too easy. I know. (laughs) Praise the Lord. We have been set free to love. Yeah, but what about our standards? Of course we have standards. Because remember, our hearts desire what God desires. But the standards are not what saves us. We keep the standards and we do these things because there's joy in them. But we have been set free to love. When Jesus did not condemn the woman... When He set her free, He did so, again, from law, by grace. Let me ask you this question. How do you think it felt for her? I think in that moment, perhaps for the first time because of the situation, perhaps for the first time she actually felt love. 
why was she in that position in the first place? And I'm just kind of thinking out a little beyond the scriptures here. I am assuming she was in that position of adultery in the first place because she was looking for love and couldn't find it. Couldn't find it in her marriage. Wasn't going to find it with some guy who was just using her. And Jesus said, I don't, I don't condemn you. And I think she felt love. And I believe she was set free to love. We don't know the end of her story. But the question this morning is, what is the end of your story going to be? You will know the end of your story. You have been set free to love. That's our response to grace. As Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 5.14, For the love of Christ controls us. Having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And He died for all so that they might live, no longer live for themselves, but for Him who died and rose again on their behalf. Let me just end with a little poem. This was written by Ironside several years ago. He said, I would not work my soul to save. That work my Lord has done. But I would work as any slave from love to God's dear Son. Let's pray. Father, there is nothing in the world like Your grace. There is nothing this world can offer us that compares to Your grace. You have truly laid out before us a reality in which we can be completely free. And we praise You for this. And we do speak of Your righteousness in this. We pour out thanksgiving for it. And Father... We just say, pour Your love by Your Spirit into us, flow through us with the love of Jesus, and may the message of grace ever be on our lips in this world. Father, this morning, someone needed to hear this. Someone perhaps coming from a place outside of Your grace. Or maybe, Lord, just someone... In this fellowship, someone who has followed You for years but has been doing so with great shame. Father, I pray, Holy Spirit, call us to Jesus. Call us to grace. You have set us free to be free. In Jesus' name, Amen. And the invitation is yours. We're going to stand and sing together. If you would come to Jesus this morning, please come and receive grace. Let's stand and sing.